Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Killers and Coffee. We're part of the Unity Podcast Network. Like and follow us on Twitter, yada yada yada, at Unity Podnet. On Facebook, at Unity Network 41. On Instagram, at Unity Podcast. And our YouTube channel. While you're at it, make sure to visit our website at www.unitypodcastnetwork.com. I'm Jess. And I'm Devin. And we're the cousins, and we love murder. But it's not so weird. weird. It's never weird. It's perfectly normal. We're sane. A lot of people love murder. It's, it's relaxing, actually. It's very knowledgeable. Like, you gain a lot of knowledge and information. It's not like we're out murdering. We're just learning about people who already have. Yeah. It's like a, a what not to do guide. Exactly. <laughs> Disclaimer, we're talking about murder. This one's not too bad, but it's kind of just sad. Yeah. And our sailor males. So if you don't like murder, and you don't like hearing about murder... Bye-bye. Let's get into it. From my understanding, you're not drinking coffee tonight. I am not drinking coffee tonight. I, my stomach has kind of been upset all day, so I made an executive decision to skip coffee at 8.15 at night. All right. Well, <laughs> I will drink my coffee vicariously through you. Okay. Well, I already know that you would hate my coffee, so. Because oh, I'm drinking a Dunkin' K cup iced with extra extra. Yeah. And I think you mentioned last week that you don't like extra extra. I don't. You're right. But let's talk about, since you're not drinking coffee and I'm drinking boring coffee, let's talk about your syrups that you made. I did make some syrups. I made a brown sugar cinnamon. Because uh, apparently, according to Duncan, that is a summer seasonal flavor, mm. and and in every ounce of my being, that is a fall flavor. <laughs> I 100% agree with you. <laughs> so they don't have it at Duncan, at least any of the ones that I go to. So I decided to try and make it. It's very easy. And then I looked up recipes for other ones and decided I wanted to try a toffee nut flavor. Love and toffee nut that turned out excellent as well so could be on to something here there you go start start a new business yeah so okay so if you you said that they don't have brown sugar cinnamon but okay so here's a little story time for you i worked on monday it was labor day it was busy as fuck I work at a diner, everybody, and I had this woman come sit down at the counter, and she had a, what looked like a Dunkin', like, iced latte, and me trying to be funny, I'm like, you can't come in here with that if you don't bring me one, you know, like, trying to be funny. <laughs> Mind you, I've already had two coffees, I had two Red Bulls in the fridge waiting for me, and she said... I'll go get you one. And I was like, you really don't have to do that. I was kidding. Like, I was trying to be funny. And she was like, no, like, I, and then told me a story about how she did something similar at another place she went to. And when I was done, like, giving her service and I gave them their check, um, I wished them, like, a nice day. And she was like, I'll see you soon. I was like, oh, my God, don't, like, you really don't have to do it. Like, you really don't. <laughs> If you do, then don't leave me a tip. And she was like, no, I'm leaving you a tip. I'm going to get you coffee. And I'm like, oh, my God. So, like, 15, 20 minutes later, she comes back in with six coffees, like, six iced coffees. And they were all, like, she was, well, when she was there, she was asking me, like, what kind of flavor I liked. And if I liked pumpkin. Because I think she got, like, the um, pumpkin with the sweet cream cold foam and or the mm-hmm. pumpkin cold foam. So she got, like, all these variations of things. And she wound up getting me a, I think they were all cold brew with, I think it was pumpkin sweet cream and brown sugar flavor. So, like, they had brown sugar. So that's why I was like, it was really good. I had to put creamer in it though, but it was really tasty. And it was like really nice. It was like, you think like she's got, she bought six 
cold brews with cold foam. She probably spent like at least forty bucks. Yeah. On strangers. That's really nice. Yeah. And I mean, if she went to the Dunkin' that I think she went to, that's like the closest one to where you were. Mm-hmm. They're probably they were probably good because I like the Dunkin'. Wait, are you talking about the one that's right down the street? Yeah. I hate that one. Really? Yeah, because they still use granulated sugar and iced coffee. Like, grow up. Grow yeah. up. At Maybe least I haven't. I don't. I don't ever get sugar in my coffee. Yeah. Like... If if I know I'm not getting sugar, then I'll like I'll go there. But there's also like that newer one that's right down the street as well. On your street, but closer to my work. So that is my absolute favorite one. That the n- one, the new one, the brand new one, and I next to Rosemore, so, right? Yes. Yeah. So when I go to work, and I mean I've been going to the same place for years and years and years. When I go to work, I go towards Six Eleven. Mm-hmm. So for years before that was there, I I was always annoyed because there was never a Dunkin' on my way to work. I would have to go all the way down to 611, make a right or a left. Because mm-hmm. there's one on both sides. Either yeah. one of those. And it would take me completely out of my way. I was so happy when that Dunkin' opened up because it's on the right yeah. side of the street. <laughs> and I go there all like that. And there's like that side street there too. So you don't have to like pull yes. right into the parking out, lot or right, right out of the parking lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that is like that one and the one in the HV shopping center, like on the other side of the Yeah, where the Starbucks is and all that. Yeah, and I just yeah. I know all the people that work there. Mm-hmm. Like because I was going there years before that. So Yeah, I that's usually like the one that I used I used to go yeah. to, like when I went to go to the doctor or mm-hmm. if I go to get a massage, like that one's right there. So it's like But this this that new one is mm-hmm. the best. Like <laughs> everything is always perfect. And and I went there I think last Monday, I believe. Like not Labor Day, the Monday before that, and they still had butter began. I even asked. I was like, "Do you have butter pecan still?" And like, they had the like fall flavors. Like, they had pumpkin. So I was like, "Oh, great! They don't have butter pecan." So like, I asked them if they had butter pecan. They said, "Yeah." And I was like, "Fuck yes!" <laughs> <laughs> well, it was the one. So one of the other ones I like a lot is the one by where the Kmart used to be. Mm-hmm. And that one's always really good. They were the ones that told me that brown sugar was discontinued for the fall. Mm. So I don't know if people are just using up their yeah i figured they they just still had butter pecan like just left over they weren't going to order anymore maybe you can figure out how to make that and i looked up a recipe for that did you yes you make like so do you know how to make brown butter uh like if you were making like brown butter cookies or something no like you basically just cook the butter on really low heat until it until it turns brown oh so it's almost like caramelized butter Mm -hmm. with like a hint of like a burnt flavor yeah so you do that and then you take pecans and you roast them and put them in with the butter so the pecan flavor like I guess melts into the butter (laughs) and like obviously you don't have chunky syrup so the pecans like come out but you're getting the flavor melted into the butter as it cooks and then obviously like because all the syrups have sugar in them yeah it's it's like and eat all the the one two that I've tried so far like equal parts of everything. So it's sugar, water, and then whatever the flavor is. So I guess this would be like sugar, water, and butter. Maybe I'll look butter up. pecan flavor. Yeah. I want to try and make. I don't like pumpkin spice stuff because mm-hmm. it's usually just too sweet. And yeah, like, I like pumpkin flavor, but I don't like that artificial pumpkin. Yeah. So I want to try and make one that's a pumpkin spice but like more of the cinnamon and like nutmeg and clove flavor and less of the like artificial yeah you'd mention that last week i think yeah because i think i might like that better so that's my next experiment (laughs) (laughs) we're not killers we're experimenters yeah we're investigators (laughs) so let's get into it because this may be a long one but a good one a good one yeah so this one has actually been one of my favorites Mm -hmm. pretty much for i mean 
I want to say for no reason at all, but it's a pretty great like story. Like it's it's crazy. It's absolutely yeah. nuts. Yeah, it's got a lot of depth to it. Like, yeah, I think I think I like the ones that are kind of quick and unexplained, but these ones like this amount of depth to the story mm-hmm. is really just it makes it so much better. Like when you hear it. Yeah, and I got like so I. I was working on my outline for two days so I didn't think I was going to be around today to do it so I started yesterday and then I wound up being around today so I was like okay but while doing my research I got like kind of lost a little bit but it was like it was very a bunch of my sources had things in different order so I was like yes you saw that too yes yeah so I as I was going along and like kind of taking notes and writing stuff down, like I mm-hmm. noticed the same thing. And I kind of just moved things around to where I thought it made the most sense. Yeah, me too. Based on everything that I was reading. Yeah. So I don't know if it's right in the order I <laughs> yeah. had it, but, but I kind of used like deductive reasoning. Like it seemed to make the most sense in a chronological order. Yeah. But yeah, that I noticed the same thing. Okay, I'm glad I'm not alone here okay so today we're doing the case of dorothea puente she ran a boarding house in sacramento california for elderly and mentally disabled people in the 80s and alcoholics um homeless alcoholics and there was a lot um she murdered between 9 and 15 boarders to collect their social security checks um we'll find we'll find out later that there is nine she won't be convicted for all nine, but she murdered nine people. I don't, I'm not sure where the fifteen came from, but that was. Well, I know of the one that she was never was never connected to her, but that's not the nine. No, I don't think he was included in the nine. Okay. No. She murdered at least nine people to collect their social security checks. She typically made her victims overdose on their own medications or medications that she obtained, like sleeping medications. Mm -hmm. She was only convicted of three murders. Uh, Media and newspapers nicknamed her the Death House Landlady. She literally looked like a regular little, little old lady. And it turns out that she was acting and, like, pretending to be, like, 70 years old when she was in fact like 49 when she was arrested it was or or acting or pretending to be 40 when she was actually 16 yeah like she was just this lady was she was was, she was a big storyteller she was a storyteller she was definitely an actress Mm -hmm. she picked the wrong profession that's for sure so, Dorothea Helen Gray was born on January 9th, 1929, a Capricorn, which is one of the really bad ones, as we've learned, in Redlands, California. Her parents were Jesse James Gray and Trudy May Yates. The family worked in cotton fields. Jesse was a veteran from Missouri. He was a victim of mustard gas in World War One, causing irreparable damage to his lungs that only grew worse he suffered from depression and was in and out of the hospital and he regularly told his children that the world was unfair and that he hated his life he would often threaten to kill himself in front of his family he once climbed a water tower intending to jump from it but his usual threat was holding a gun to his own head as his family yelled at him to stop it was something. Uh-huh. In 1937, when Puente was eight, my, my one book said, in 1931, when Puente was eight, and I caught it immediately. <laughs> I was like, what the hell? That is not proper math. <laughs> so, in 1937, when Puente was eight, her father died of tuberculosis. And naturally, because tuberculosis is very contagious, they have to quarantine. We're all familiar with that. <laughs> yeah, right. Trudy was from Oklahoma. She was tough and she was rebellious. She joined motorcycle gangs. She was a sex worker. She would disappear for days at a time. And when she returned, she'd be hungover, tired, and battered. She generally struggled with motherhood. Apparently not getting a knack for it after seven times. 
because she had seven children. In 1938, Trudy was riding on the back of a motorcycle when she and the driver got into an accident and she died. So a year after Dorothea's father died, her mother died. The children wouldn't find out that their mother died until they were physically being dropped off at the funeral. From, like, an orphanage, I believe. The parents were both alcoholics. They would physically beat each other. And before she died, Trudy taught Dorothea to be sympathetic for the drunks and to show them compassion. And she would carry this in her mind her whole life. So she was the sixth out of seven children. After Jesse died and Trudy was struggling with alcoholism, the children were sporadically split among different family members, except Dorothea and three of her siblings. When social workers were made aware of the mistake, they went to retrieve the children and they were placed in the Church of Christ home. When Trudy died, Dorothea was in the orphanage already. For the next couple years, she bounced around relatives and foster families. I found a couple stories about where she ended up because I had one source that said she eventually moved in with her brother Jim, which was the oldest, mm-hmm. and his That's wife Louisa. Louisa was Portuguese, and Dorothea would go to school and pretend to be Portuguese also. She claimed to have English as a second language. Similarly, I had another source stating that she wound up with her aunt after her aunt learned about Trudy's death. And Dorothea went to school pretending to have been an immigrant from Mexico with 18 brothers and sisters who lost both of her parents in an accident. So so what I found that kind of ties into that was that when um, Dorothea, like, because obviously their parents didn't care about them at all, they would often, like, the dad would be in the hospital because he was sick and uh-huh. the mom would just be, like, off drinking or whatever, like that the seven children like really just fended for themselves they had to find food to eat themselves they had to care for themselves like there would be times where their mom would lock them in a closet because she knew she was going go going away for days yeah um but during like those times dorothea would go out i guess and her brothers and sisters would like go out into the streets and try and find food like in trash cans or bag or whatever they had to do to eat Um, and like she would be like what I found said that she would be like abused and stuff in the streets and everything like that and she often took to Mexican families because she just felt that they were more compassionate towards her as like a stranger little girl out on the street and like wanted to bring her in and care for her and feed her and she ended up learning like Spanish and all that and like went on for the rest of her life like acting as if every family almost like picking up every child of every family and like every time she found the new family that took her in for a day or two and or fed her she would then like gain a brother or a sister okay you know what I mean mm-hmm. so like it was just people random people that said oh like you're a starving little child like come in and get something warm to eat or whatever yeah. and like she would just like keep in touch with them all and yeah and you know. she she would go on for her whole life pretending to be a little latino girl just would always have a story about how she was from mexico and this that and the third so when she was a teenager at 16 years old she eventually decided to run away from the foster care foster care system and try to make it on her own With a little bit of money she saved up, she caught a bus to Olympia, Washington, or she was going to Washington and stopped at Olympia because she ran out of money, I believe. Dorothea and another teenage girl she befriended at the bus station decided to share a small, seedy motel room for business. Mm -hmm. She was traditionally attractive and turned to sex work. She had no trouble getting clients because World War II had just ended, soldiers were coming home, soldiers who hadn't been with a woman in quite some time, you know where this is going... Dorothea meets 22-year-old Fred Fred McFall, a soldier who served in the Philippines. McFall would pay to have extra time just to talk to Dorothea. He eventually became infatuated with her and proposed three weeks after meeting. That's like a recurring theme, I think, in our cases. Yes. Of just, like, meet, hi. It's like, I mean, that's like... It's old school. I mean, this is the... This is 
the 40s. Yeah, I think too, though, that um, a lot of similarities in the cases we have are people have symptoms or actual diagnosis of impulsive personalities, schizophrenia, Mm -hmm. bipolar, and things like the, the mania and the hypersexuality and all of that are very common in those diagnosis and like a big part of that is not wanting to ever be alone yeah like you literally can't function alone so i think it's just very common to like move from one relationship to the next the next the next and like not really think anything of it yeah or back to the psychology portion (laughs) and mcfall didn't even care that she was a sex worker her marriage with Fred McCormick. Mc- oh, that's nice of him. <laughs> <laughs> well, her next husband wouldn't be so nice. Spoiler alert. <laughs> After she and Fred got married, they relocated to Gardnerville, Nevada. Eventually, McFall started to grow tired of Puente's constant lies. They had two daughters together in 1946 and 47. Puente turned out to resent motherhood, which apparently runs in the family. Yeah. And they were giving up the girls, one to McFall's mother and the other to foster care. And Puente started to drink heavily. This became troublesome for the couple and they were fighting constantly. She began to show a little a little, little bit of remorse for giving up her youngest daughter, but did nothing about it. Puente ran away from her husband to Los Angeles and didn't speak to him for a whole month. But in 1948, their marriage deteriorated completely when Puente got pregnant for a third time, but by another man while she was in L.A. She wound up miscarrying this child, but this was McFall's breaking point. After that, the two separated and were divorced in the same year. (laughs) After her divorce, Puente needed to find a job and got a shitty apartment in L.A. She befriended people at lowly jobs, earned their trust, and then steal whatever she could. She turned to sex work again and began began to steal from her clients, taking checkbooks, cash, and valuables. Pretty much anything she could get her hands on. She chickened out while going to buy shoes with someone else's check, and her nerves made her suspicious. The cops were called, she was arrested, and the psych evaluation was done. And she was deemed impulsive, but sane. Her impulses are what drove her to steal. The doctor decided that Puente was stealing because of unhappiness with her life as opposed to being greedy. Puente was sentenced to a year in prison for two counts of felony forgery and writing bad checks. But she'd only served four months, and she was released on probation. In May 1950, after six months of being out, Puente fled after deciding that since she was a first-time offender for a nonviolent crime, police wouldn't waste time tracking her down like for violating probation because you're not supposed to leave. Yeah. And she was right. And moving on to her second marriage. In 1952, Puente met Axel Johansson, a Swedish seaman, and they got married. I didn't want to say seaman. (laughs) A seaman. A seaman. And I said seaman anyway, so... (laughs) Her lies took a turn. She was suddenly a Muslim woman who was a former rockette who ended her dancing career after a stage accident. Johansson was enthralled with the stories Puente told initially, but eventually her stories started to contradict each other and he became suspicious. What I learned from this whole case is that Dorothea Puente is just, like, number one sus. Like, just all she is. Yeah, yeah. I, like, like, I I don't understand how... I guess she didn't have, like, friends or family. Like, she was just constantly meeting new people. Yeah. Like, how do people believe any of this? I was a rockette. Okay. I mean... I don't know. (laughs) So, Puente began drinking heavily again. And whenever Johansson was out at sea, being a seaman, Puente would have men over. And the neighbors ratted her out and told her husband and she formed a gambling habit and shopping addiction and wasted her husband's money Mm -hmm. johansson disliked puente's previous sex work so not like mcfall who's like oh yeah sex work yeah it's all right (laughs) go for it (laughs) johansson was like nah dude i feel like though if he liked he was okay with it but then the final straw was when she got pregnant with somebody else's baby like (laughs) 
You know what? That's just hypocritical. You know what? Pick one. So, supposedly when Puente reached her 30s, she started to gain weight and it was harder for her to find sex work. So she turned to opening a brothel disguised as a bookkeeping surface and she became a madam. In 1960, the owner of the building suspected something was amiss and called the police. An investigation revealed that the, quote, bookkeepers had a secret phone number for clients who knew what the business was. The number reached a woman's voice that advertised a $7.50 blowjob special. That's special, all right. (laughs) Two cops disguised as truck drivers called the number asking for the special. The cops dusted some money in their hands with fluorescent powder. They went to the house and Puente greeted them and introduced her associate, who would only offer blowjobs, and if they wanted anything more, they would have to supply their own condoms. Since there was only one bed, they would have to take turns, and Puente offered coffee to the man who was waiting. But both men went into the room after fondling Puente's breasts, because she'd offered them up. It's like, here, here's my tits. But eventually they they did it because they dusted the powder on themselves so they got it on her when the associate was ready to service the men they dropped their act and told her they were there to arrest them puente pled that she didn't know she was working at a brothel but she convinced no one she and the associate were charged for prostitution, and Puente was charged with pimping, but struck a deal that landed her a lighter sentence. Puente served 90 days in the Sacramento County Jail for, quote, being in a house of ill repute. <laughs> when her sentence was over, she returned to Johansson. <laughs> I was like, I was like, where is he this whole time? <laughs> but, yeah, so... <laughs> She returned to Johansson, and the couple would stay together for three more years. He beat her for her behavior, and she started to pull away from him. But, like, I feel like abuse at this time on spouses was normal. Yeah. Like, it wasn't frowned upon. Yeah. She began to read books about medicine and called herself a holistic doctor. In 1961, Puente attempted to take her own life, and her husband had her committed to a psychiatric hospital where she was diagnosed as having an unstable personality. Sure. <laughs> no shit. <laughs> In 1966, Johansson divorced her. And she had to find a new way to earn money. Realizing that forgery and sex work wasn't going to cut it anymore, and real employment really wasn't her thing she needed a new way to make money she remembered what her mother taught her about her compassion for the alcoholics (laughs) the drunks of sacramento were often hard to employ elderly or disabled therefore they received government assistance in the form of social security checks puente devised a plan that she would open a home for the needy she would earn their trust help care for them just so she could have access to their money if she had enough people under her care she could receive a hefty income with their government checks She opened the home and called it the Samaritans. She started to age badly, so she dressed in older clothing and wore glasses to make her look like an old woman. She enlisted the work of Latino immigrants to help with tasks in the house that she was too tired to do herself. One of these men was a 20-year-old Mexican immigrant named Roberto Puente. With her, he saw a legal future in the U.S., a.k.a. he was using her for a green card. They began a relationship and all the other workers were let go so Mr. Puente could be the sole full-time handyman. In 1968, they were married and sharing Roberto's legality in the States. He became unfaithful, eventually moved into a separate room of the house because of her, quote, snoring. That's why (laughs) that was his reason for moving Mm -hmm. into a separate room. He was constantly seeing other women behind Puente's back. Mr. Puente initially avoided her (laughs) when divorce was on the table, and they eventually broke up. There was a fight. Social workers were alerted of the domestic dispute. They immediately pulled nearly every tenant from the Samaritans. And she had accrued a debt of $10,000, and the halfway house was shut down. It was time for a bigger plan. I read she she hit him, and he fell down the steps. (laughs) That was like the dispute was that they got into a physical fight and she punched him and he fell down the steps. 
<laughs> a physical dispute is a physical dispute. I just think, like, I don't think it's funny when women be men. That's not, not, that's what was about to come out of my mouth, but that's not funny, and that is not what I meant. So what you were going to say I'm, is, it's so I'm funny just, when women be I, men. <laughs> I just picture this old, like, older, she was yeah. old at this point, but she was- But she was looked old. She, she was, was looked old. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm pretty sure she- he was 20 and she was 40 at this point yeah she was like half her age yeah so i'm picturing this like older women woman dressed as an old lady punching this little mexican man and falling down the steps like the whole the <laughs> scene in my head is funny is i guess what i'm trying to say circumstances aren't funny but the players play the plot is funny <laughs> yeah. I just imagine, like, when I first read, like, she literally looks like, you gotta go look her up if you, like, have, yes. if you don't know what she looks like, because, like, she literally looks like someone who just got, like, an old lady costume from the yeah. costume store. It's, it's so she's, funny. She's quite funny looking. <laughs> so, <laughs> by the 1970s, she was able to purchase another boarding house, a three-story, 16-bedroom Victorian house at 2100 F Street in Sacramento. Puente salvaged her reputation by taking in tenants who were very difficult or high risk. She had also gotten a good rep from her donations and rubbing elbows with wealthy politicians. So she was stealing money from people, from her tenants, and she was actually, like, donating some. Mm -hmm. And, like, she she was a very well-liked woman, despite her her ulterior motives. Her her hidden (laughs) agenda. Yeah. She referred to herself as La Doctora, and would give her tenants vitamin shots. And <laughs> she would literally like carry around like a medical bag and pretend to be a doctor. Puente was able to make herself the payee of the tenants' social security checks. In 1975, Puente took a liking to Pedro Montalvo, a laborer on her grounds. Puente decided to take things slowly this time. Like, not three weeks. (laughs) She would watch him work on the house and the yard. Eventually, they'd talk more and spend more time together. She even invited him up to her private floor of the house. Puente introduced him to her friends, business partners, and took him with her to her favorite bars. And the two were married August 28th, 1976. So, taking things slow means a year. Yeah. (laughs) I guess. He was different than her other husbands, but not really. Montalvo was older than Puente, but he was immature and loud, and it was clear that he saw an easy life and a green card. Puente taught Montalvo the inner workings of her business, except the finances, because she was the only one handling the money. Montalvo started becoming put off by Puente when her personality seemed to split abruptly. Sometimes she was nice and grandmotherly, other times she was aggressive. She was high-maintenance, spending a considerable amount of time and money on clothes, makeup, and jewelry. One day, she acted like a grandmother with a walking cane and glasses, and the next day, she was going to bars and getting sloppy and drunk. It's all about balance, baby. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Puente started conflicting her made-up stories. Again. Ruining another marriage with your conflicting stories. Montalvo realized all her money was stolen. He was at the house in the first place because he was a violent alcoholic and he was physically abusive. Puente claimed he tried to stab her in the face and that he killed animals like her own cat. Jeez. Their marriage didn't last long and it was annulled. Moving to 1426 F Street. And I didn't realize that it was like two different places for a while. Yeah, I... Sorry, myself. At the same time. Yeah. So like this was her apartment first. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So in 1977, a former tenant named Robert Davis was serving time in jail. He was waiting for a social security check. When Davis investigated it, the check had already been cashed with his signature. He remembered Puente's way of running the boarding house where he lived for three years and decided that she was the reason he didn't get his check. Davis reported Puente to the Treasury Department and an investigation opened. Soon after, they discovered 34 other social security checks that had been signed and forged by Puente, who claims that she had taken the check to Davis in jail and he signed it in front of the guards and that he told her to cash it, but he just forgot. Mm -hmm. 
No one believed her, and she pled guilty to avoid jail time. She was charged with five years probation, had to pay back $4,000 in restitution, give up her boarding house, and was required to undergo extensive psychiatric counseling. In 1979, Puente winds up renting an apartment on the second floor of Ricardo Odorica's 1426 F Street Victorian. And she always paid on time. Imagine. I I saw that she her extensive psychiatric counseling was one visit and she never <laughs> went back. <laughs> well, you know, therapy's not for everybody. Yeah, I guess not. <laughs> Puente was a part-time cook at the Flame Club when she met Ruth Monroe and her husband Harold, who she married late in life. Ruth had some money and Puente wanted to rent out the cafe at Joe's Corner Bar and wanted Ruth to go in on it with her, you know, because she had money. (laughs) When it opened, Puente was constantly saying, oh, we need more money, we need more money. It was a recurring statement as the restaurant was failing. Harold had terminal cancer, and when he had to go stay in a special hospital, Ruth moved in with Puente at 1426 F Street. Ruth's children would visit her often, and toward the end of her life, they thought it was odd that she was seen drinking creme de menthe, even though she wasn't much of a drinker. Puente had fixed her this drink when she was feeling stressed from the restaurant closing. When Ruth began feeling sick, she stayed in bed. On April 28, 1982, Ruth Monroe was dead. There was a toxic amount of drug levels in her system. She died of overdose and t- of Tylenol and codeine. But I believe her report says, like, undetermined. Yeah. Well, so I, I saw that the autopsy, like, when they opened her stomach up, it literally was just filled it was empty. With, it was filled with pills and the the green liquid the the liquidy green chalky drink that she was giving her morning noon and night with the pills in it Mm -hmm. and they just assumed like she tried to commit suicide right and puente reported her death was a suicide stating that her husband's illness made her extremely depressed but there was also like another something that said about her not having any food in her stomach yeah was that she just forgot to eat like she told one of her one of her kids that she wasn't she hadn't been eating so moving on to malcolm mckenzie who would not be murdered but would be important he was 74 he was a regular of the zebra club which was a bar a few weeks after monroe's death mckenzie met puente at the bar and they had a few drinks together he mentioned living close by and the two went to his home when they got there he began feeling strange so he laid down it appeared that he was given some sort of medication that made him unable to move, but he was awake. He was able to watch Puente go through his things. She took coins, valuables, and even the ring he was wearing. And she left. When Mackenzie was able to move a few hours later, he reported her to the police. Puente was arrested. At the time, she was impersonating a doctor and caring for elderly people. She was giving she was giving the same medication that was administered to Mackenzie to these old women so she could steal their belongings and checks similarly to Mackenzie. Puente was charged in August and sentenced to five years prison time for counts of forgery, grand theft, and administering stupefying drugs. While Puente was in jail, she began a pen pal friendship with Everson Gilmuth, a 77-year-old retiree from Oregon. When Puente was released for good behavior in September 1985, Gilmuth was there to pick her up in his red Ford pickup. It was this time that under her parole, she was not allowed to have any caretaking jobs. A relationship started to blossom and they were making wedding plans, all while staying in the 1426 F Street house, which Ricardo Odorica had left. But I think he still owned it. Yeah. In November, Gilmuth's sister Reba received a letter from an Irene Gregory. This letter stated that he and Puente had broken up and he was now shacking up with this Irene Gregory. They supposedly went to Sacramento Sacramento to pick up Gilmuth's things, but the handwriting was identical to Puente's. (laughs) Hmm, imagine that. This is when it started to get crazy. Puente had hired Ishmael Flores to install wood paneling in her apartment and Puente had sold him a red Ford pickup. She explained it was her ex-boyfriend's who no longer needed it. She had asked him to build her a wood box, six by three by two foot, to store books and other items in. 
And when it was filled, he needed to help her bring it to storage. And I forgot to put this in my notes, but she, I think this is where she hired a prison mate's boyfriend to help her dispose of the body, like wrap it up and stuff. But I don't know. I didn't see anything like that. Okay. On the way to storage, in quotations, she asked Flores to stop to dump the box at a riverbank that was an unofficial dumping site. Puente continued collecting his pension and wrote letters to his family. Gilmuth's pension. Everson Gilmuth's body was discovered in the box on January 1st, 1986 by local fishermen who called the police. No one claimed the body and he went unidentified for three years. That's so sad. I know. Suspicion is starting. Due to her acceptance... Why is it not started years and years and years ago? <laughs> Due to her acceptance of referrals for difficult cases, such as drug addicts and violent tenants, Puente continued to accept senior boarders. She enjoyed a good reputation among the community social workers. Before the renters could see it, she gathered their monthly mail and paid them some money, keeping the rest for her own expenses. Puente was visited by parole officers at least 15 times during this time. Although being told to stay away from the elderly and not handle government checks, there were never any infractions, which confuses me. If she was being visited by parole officers while she's breaking parole or violating parole, why aren't there any infractions? None of it makes any sense (laughs) to me on how she could be in prison so many times and like, I don't know. Yeah. Neighbors' observations of the strange behavior of Chief, a homeless alcoholic who Puente claimed she had adopted and hired as her handyman, first sparked suspicion. Puente ordered Chief to excavate in the cellar and remove soil and trash with a wheelbarrow, although a concrete slab covered the basement level. Chief removed a garage from the backyard and added a brand new concrete slab there also. Soon after, Chief vanished. Yeah, Chief was one of the ones that, like, I don't think that she was ever actually charged for. Okay, yeah. They just are assuming that she, yeah. after they found out what she had actually done, mm. um, that they assumed he was one of hers, too. Yeah. Moving on to Alberto Montoya, which is very sad, in my opinion, yeah. especially with the documentary. I just want to, like, I just want to, like, hug him, you know? But ultimately, this is where would be her downfall. Since the early 80s, Alberto, known by Bert Montoya, I think his real name was Alvaro, an intellectually disabled schizophrenic was staying at a detox facility for alcoholics, even though he was not an alcoholic, and street counselor Judy Moyes wanted him in a better suited place for him. She had heard about Puente's boarding house and they were impressed. So he was living at this detox facility for almost a decade before he needed to move. And I say he moved into Puente's, the boarding house that she was illegally running for a third time. Puente spoke to Bert in Spanish, making him feel at home, and he even took to calling her mama. Puente managed to get Bert on Social Security, securing $600 a month, which I feel like that's a lot. Yeah. I think that, like, especially for back then. Mm-hmm. Bert, his friends, and the street counselors were finally happy until Puente started to get mean. She started lashing out at the visiting nurses, basically telling them not to come back. One day, Bert returned to his old detox center and confided in one of the workers there that he had been feeling very tired. It turned out that Puente had been force-feeding him some unknown medications that made him feel sick. He returned to the boarding house anyway. On November 11th, 1988, Judy had reported Bert missing. Judy would call looking for Bert, and Puente would make excuses like he wasn't there. She claimed that she had taken him to visit her family in Mexico and stated that they wanted to visit with him some more and she was going to pick him up personally. Eventually, an unknown man called Judy after she threatened to call the police. The man, Don Anthony, explained to Judy that Bert had come home from Mexico, but his family came and picked him up. Judy didn't believe him and called John Sharp, who had lived in the house. Sharp told her that Puente had been digging a lot of holes. But see, so... John it, Sharp is the real hero in this story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's the one that slipped a little note, too. Mm-hmm. So, Don Anthony, I saw that that was the person's real name. 
and Puente wanted him to use the name Miguel, but he used his real name. But yeah, I don't know. That was all I saw about it. Well, we all can't be liars. Just some of us. An officer went over to 1426 F Street to file the missing persons report on Bert, and everyone in the house had the same story that Bert had left with family members. So I think the officer was Cabrera. One of the tenants slipped the officer a note saying, she wants me to lie to you. This tenant was John Sharp. He was taken in for questioning and told them that he didn't know exactly what happened to Bert, but that Puente had just told him to lie for her. Finally, Officer John Cabrera decided to investigate Puente's background, where he saw all her prior charges. Mm-hmm. So this is where they decide to investigate her. Yeah. <laughs> he knew he had to go to the house and talk to her, and Judy had like told a him- hundredth, to- hundredth strike and you're out. Right, right. <laughs> Judy told him to bring shovels to dig in the yard. Officer Cabrera, his partner, and Puente's PO, Jim Wilson, went to the boarding house. He asked her about Bert. She told them she was expecting them. They discovered that she was in violation of her parole because she wasn't allowed to give care to anybody. And Officer Cabrera asked her if they could search her premises. I wait. I thought that when when after they, I'm, I'm just reading down a few lines on yours to make sure you didn't have this in here. After they searched the house, then he asked if they could search like dig in the yard yeah that's and next. she said yeah she was like what do you mean why <laughs> no i saw that she said she said yes and asked if they needed extra shovels oh i didn't see that yeah <laughs> <laughs> like sure dig here's an extra shovel i'll help if you <laughs> I'll want help yeah I, we're actually getting through this a lot faster than i thought we would <laughs> So, anyway, (laughs) Officer Cabrera found blue pills everywhere that were used for sleeping disorders. Because of her past, things were starting to fall into place. He then asked if they could dig. And apparently, Puente said, here's some more shovels. (laughs) So the three of them dug into the soil, the three of them being Cabrera's partner and the PO, I'm assuming. Mm -hmm. They dug in the soil in the garden. Officer Cabrera was finding trash at first, then he found light pink pieces of cloth. Then he found a leather substance, which turned out to be dried human flesh. And then he found a human femur that was attached to a skeleton. Afterward, officials took Dorothea Puente and her tenants in for questioning. She showed no emotion and played like she didn't know that it was there and that insisted it had been there, like, when she moved in. Or that it had been old. After the initial dig, officers brought in an anthropologist and someone from the coroner's office to excavate the entire yard. Puente asked Officer Cabrera if she was under arrest because she was stressed and wanted to get a coffee with her nephew at the hotel down the street. At this point, he didn't have anything to hold her on, so he told her to go ahead. She put on a red coat and went to the hotel. When Officer Cabrera restarted his digging, he found a leg in his shovel. His commander went to retrieve Puente from the coffee shop, but she had taken off. No, you think? (laughs) A be on the lookout notice was sent out to other agencies and the media. Because she was gone, they finished digging up the yard and they found a third body. The body of Alberto Montoya. Yeah, he was like like a big teddy bear. So these are the bodies that they found. Officials were initially confused because they were looking for Bert and found six other bodies, but who were they? Once at the morgue, their identities were discovered. We have Leona Carpenter, who was 78. It was a tenant with cancerous tumors in her brain that left her needing care and many medications, but Puente grew, grew tired of taking care of her. James Gallup, 62, a cancer survivor in poor health who disliked Puente's demand for full control of their money, and threatened to call the police if she tried to take his. He was capable of taking his own medication, so Puente ground up some pills and put them in his dinner. Vera Faye Martin, 64, a mother whose drink Puente spiked the day she moved in. Officer Cabrera found her body with her mouth wide open as if she died screaming, and dirt patterns around her body may have indicated that she was buried alive. I don't like that. Dorothy Miller, 64, a Native American Army veteran who suffered from alcoholism 
M. Night Terrors, Miller actually enjoyed Puente, but Puente found Miller to be annoying. Because of her night terror, she was prescribed strong sleeping pills, and Puente took a large amount and ground them up into a drink. Benjamin Fink, 55, an alcoholic with lung problems who could never hold a job. She killed him the same way as James Gallup. Betty Palmer, 77, a woman who had a fairly normal life with family she still contacted. Palmer moved into Puente's when her medical bills began to pile up. Like Gallup, she didn't want Puente controlling her finances, but Puente told Palmer she wanted to apologize for the tension between them and have drinks together. Her drink was, of course, poisoned. Because Palmer stayed in contact with her family, Puente had her body dismembered to deem unidentifiable, so her death wouldn't trace back to Puente. One of her handymen sawed off Palmer's head, hands, and lower legs. The rest of her body was never found. Alberto Montoya, 51, the gentle schizophrenic that would bring up this entire investigation. So then we have the capture. I know. Then we have the capture of Dorothea Puente. Puente had apparently fled to LA and she was recognized in a bar by someone she was trying to scam. Yeah, so I I thought it was interesting that what I saw like said that while they were digging in her backyard, like she literally offered them the shovels and then like got somebody to drive her to somewhere well, like to go to Mexico or something mm-hmm. like she was like literally trying to escape like as they were digging in the mm-hmm. <laughs> well yeah she went to go get coffee uh, yeah. <laughs> she was followed to the motel that she was staying at and LAPD captured her and she was escorted back to Sacramento so the guy at the bar I didn't put this in there but I know the information so I'll just say it the guy at the bar I forget his name, but Mackenzie, she, the Mackenzie guy. No, this is a different guy. Oh. Like the bar that in LA that she was recognized in and eventually captured. Oh. Um, this guy she was talking to, like they were talking. She basically had plans to do the whole social security check thing because I think he was retired, oh. and he. They had, like, a nice time together, but he, like, kind of had a feeling that something was weird. Like, he had a bad feeling about her, but he agreed, like, yeah, let's hang out again. And then when he got back to his, like, his place, the whole story was on the news about the bodies and stuff. And was like, oh my god, this that's the woman. She had told him that her name was Donna, Donna something. And... He was like, oh, her name's not Donna, it's Dorothea Puente, because there's her picture and here's her story. So then he said, like, hey, he called the cop and said, hey, this person was at this bar, like, here. So that's how she was caught. So I had a a different (laughs) um, ending, I guess. Okay. The whole L.A. part, from what I saw, was that she ended up, like, fleeing while the police were like digging and stuff and went back to LA and the just her car like someone noticed her car that was like I guess they were advertising on the news or whatever like if you see this woman or this is the car she's driving whatever like that it was just her car and like police just followed like found her car I thought she didn't drive I don't know that's what I'm okay so 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 like the guy's name was Charles Wilkie's yeah, it said but, um, he was not, reti- like none of this this chunk was anything I saw. Okay, let me read it from. Okay, so I'm gonna read it from one of my sources. Quote mm-hmm. verbatim: Dorothea would not be located by cops or detectives. She would be identified, ironically, by a man she met in a bar, Charles Wilgies. Will Wilgies was Wil- I don't even how do you even say that? Wilgs. Let's just say Wilgs was retired and on disability, something Dorothea could tell as soon as they started chatting. Introducing herself as Donna Johansson, they made plans to see each other again and Dorothea silently began concocting a scheme for his checks. But Wilkes had a bad feeling about her that he could not shake. The ba- that bad feeling would end up probably saving his life. When he got home, he turned on the news and right on the TV screen was a nice woman he had just been having drinks with. Donna Johansson was really Dorothea Puente and she was wanted for multiple murders. 
While Dorothea had been in L.A., Ruth Monroe's children had managed to open up their mother's case against her. Everson Gilmuth had been identified after three years as a John Doe, and his death was also tied to Dorothea. Like, spoiler alert, a little bit. Yeah, so it didn't actually... I think I, like, I tied that that part in with what I saw in the documentary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. So, I guess, yeah, because it was in the documentary that the the, the man was in the documentary. The Wilkes guy. Mm-hmm. I, I watched that, but it was, like, months and months and months ago. I watched it today. <laughs> nice. So, anyway, that's where we're at. <laughs> so, when the case broke open, Officer Cabrera got a call from Everson Gilmas' family explaining they haven't seen him in three years. Soon after, detectives from Sutter County contacted Officer Cabrera and told him about the John Doe they found in the box that was wrapped similarly to the other bodies and the murder was tied to Puente. And Ruth Monroe's children came forward as well. And she went to trial. Dorothea Montalvo Puente was charged with murdering nine people and cashing their social security checks. A judge moved the trial to Monterey County after granting Puente's attorneys Kevin Climo and Peter Vlouten III's request for a change of venue. Trial lasted a year starting in October 1992. The prosecutor was John O'Mara, Sacramento County District Attorney Office's homicide supervisor. O'Mara called over 130 witnesses. After a month of deliberation, the jury found Puente guilty of only three of the murders, and there were deadlocks on the other six. There was just one one guy in the jury who was like, oh, there's just a little old lady. There's a little old lady. She was charged with first-degree murders of Dorothy Miller and Benjamin Fink and a second-degree murder of Leona Carpenter. So she would not be convicted for the murders of Bert. Yeah. Betty Palmer's murder was not included because her head and limbs were never found. Ruth Monroe was never officially considered one of Puente's victims. On December 11th, 1993, Puente was sentenced to the state prison for a life term without the possibility of parole. In conclusion, Dorothea Puente was sent to the Central King... Central California Women's Facility in Chowchilla, California. She maintained her innocence and insisted the tenants died of natural causes. On May 27, 2011, Dorothea Montalvo Puente died of natural causes in prison at 82 years old. What a shame. Mm. But that's the story of Dorothea Montalvo Puente. Johansson. <laughs> so she had she was a big she was a compulsive liar she was a thief she used people she took advantage of people mm-hmm. I think that's the worst part of this for me like just the fact that these poor people like just, are just trying to they, be safe yeah and... they thought they were getting help like it's just so sad yeah but yeah I, this was went a lot faster than I thought it was going to yeah. um so I, I apparently they did say it in the documentary um I just it's been so long I forgot but I like re-looked it up because I remembered it that the house her house is still there excuse me Mm-hmm. Is um, still there, like because it was built in 1890. It's technically considered a historical building, so it can't be demolished. Mm. So it's literally still like in Sacramento. Like people own it now. There was um, there's crazy like a Ghost Hunters episode on yeah. it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But so interesting. Yeah, so kind of live in that house. I know. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it has, like, a better garden now. Oh, ew. <laughs> it's, it's fertilized. <laughs> Gross. So, my work cited today, I use Netflix's Worst Roommate Ever, episode one, titled Call Me Grandma. Mm. Got a lot of information from that. Yeah. The Big Book of Serial Killers, get this, volume two. <laughs> 
by Jack Rosewood and Rebecca Lowe. I use Wikipedia. And The Corpse Collector, The True Story of Dorothea Puente, The Boarding House Killer by Genevieve Ortiz. And Buried Beneath the Boarding House by Ryan Green. Is that like a book book or like a factual book? It's a book. Does that make sense? It's a factual book. It sounds like it just should be like like a... fiction. Yeah. No, it was nonfiction. That was that. It was funny because I was talking to my mom about it yesterday when I was doing my research. That one is very wordy, and I hate wordy, like informational text. Yeah. It sounds like it'd be a cool movie. I'm buried beneath the boarding house. I'd watch it. Yeah, the corpse collector. <laughs> It's a good title as well. The Corpse Collector. What are your what are your cited sites? Oh, you know the usual Wikipedia, Wikipedia Murderpedia, allthat'sinteresting.com. Yeah. Biography. <laughs> no, there was no biography. Um, I went on Crime, Crime Museum, Museum briefly. Um and I did listen to another podcast. It's, it's Morbid, a true crime podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a pretty good one, too. So, listen to some info on that one. Ugh. But that's it, folks. That's a wrap. What is that? Watch the documentary. It's really good. And the other episodes are good, It is too. really good. I watched yeah. the whole series oh before I, like... Before I got into it, it's like this is the second time that I've seen that documentary on yeah. Dorothea. So the, the one I forget his name, the man who was like a squatter, kind of. Did you watch that? Yeah, episode? I watched all the episodes. So, yeah, he was like, there was some information about like he went to like the high school that I graduated from, and really, it was just, yeah, it was really creepy. Like, a lot of the stuff was like happening like around there. I don't remember that one because I feel like I would be like, "Oh my god, that's so close." Yeah. But it was like like a seven foot tall creepy man mm. who like moved into people's apart, like looked for like roommates on like Craigslist and stuff, and, like moved in with them, and then just never oh, yeah. paid bills, but like never left. <laughs> I like the other one that's like the one guy who's like, "Oh, I hate noise," and they like they lured him out of the place by like having a party. That's the same guy. Oh, is it? Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the only way they could get him out. Yeah. Like, the last place he was in. By having a party. Yes, and that... I, I want to say I think that girl's name is Julie. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Why, that was in... No, but that... Those apartments are in, like, Wincote or something. I was looking at apartments in Wincote. Where that was happening, yeah. Have you ever? I actually, I don't know if I've ever actually asked you this, but did you ever watch um, Homicide City? No. Chelsea actually got me into it like a year or so ago. It's literally all like homicide stories in the Philadelphia area. Interesting. And then there's a second season that's Charlotte. I just finished watching that one. Hmm. But it's a good show. It's on ID Channel. That me out. My mom's <laughs> probably watched it. Well, there was there was one episode. That's her favorite channel. Yeah, that's the only reason why I bought Discovery Plus was for the ID channel. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, one of the one of the episodes is the. Do you remember when there was a was it a Hands in Jenkintown? But then it was a Chili's. It was the Chili's. Now it's like a Longhorn, I think. Only only restaurant I ever think of in Jenkintown is Applebee's. It's not as far as Applebee's. It's like closer uh, to the Trader Joe's and like the old Ross and Old Navy. Okay. There's like a CVS there too. Yeah. But it's a Longhorn now. It used to be mm-hmm. a Chili's. I've been there when I, when it was a Chili's. But you know what? I do remember when it was the Hula Hands. I remember the exact location now. Yeah. Yes. So when it was a hula hands, the manager was murdered in the mm. restaurant by the one dishwasher who was like, and they didn't know it was him because he was like, super, like he was 
super like devastated like played like played it so good like he took good the manager was like a really nice guy and like took decent care of his like employees like personally and i forget what the reasoning was but it was it's crazy that like there was a murder in that building and i've eaten there before (laughs) there the um ihop that's that used to be i don't think it's there anymore on 611 yeah like by the movie theater it's still there Years and years ago, there was like a robbery there. Yeah, and they robber, locked like, people in the walk-in the freezer. Mm-hmm. I have not gone back there since. <laughs> like, I will not. <laughs> yeah, I remember when that happened. You think uh, we live in such a safe place, and we it's don't. like, <laughs> no, we don't. <laughs> the burbs, man, they're almost as bad yeah. as the city, <laughs> not <safe>. but not <laughs> really. <laughs> All right, everybody. It's getting late, sort of. Not really. Make sure to go like and follow Killers and Coffee on Facebook and Twitter if you haven't already. And please, come for the coffee. And stay for the crime. See you next week.